oh, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut. You're gonna be our favorite nut. We'll have a lot of little oh, by golly. Then we'll put them in the follies. By jingo, said by gosh, by gee. By Jiminy, please don't bother me. So they all went away singing oh, by gee, by gosh, by gum. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will begin uh, looking at the works of Richard Wright. It will probably take a couple months to get through his major works. Uh, obviously, we're not going to read all of them, but we are going to look at the two volumes in the Library of America um, that we have of, of Wright's work to date. Uh, it will be Law Today, Uncle Tom's Children, Native Son, Black Boy, and The Outsider uh, in that order. Um, so today, uh, I will talk about Lord Today. Lord Today was uh, written in 1935. Well, it might have been written in 1934 a little bit. I'm not sure when he started writing this exactly, but he starts submitting it for publication in, in 1935 under the name Cesspool. Um, he later recalls it Lord Today, which is kind of a catchphrase of sorts that comes throughout the novel. It is, uh, um, it's not published till 1960. It's not published, oh, sorry, 1963. So it's not published till after uh, Wright dies. Wright dies, and I believe it's in 1960. Fairly young, uh, a fairly, uh, yeah, 1960. A fairly tragic life. Um, what's interesting about Wright is that he, his life sort of encompasses the, the worst decades of, um, of post-slavery American race relations in a way. He's born well after kind of the, the end of that Reconstruction moment, which we just finished discussing, and then the, the re-implementation re of, of what Du Bois calls like a return to slavery, but essentially mean Jim Crow. You know, basically, his, his, if you look at his dates, it's the Jim Crow years are his, are his, is his lifetime, right? Um, I guess it starts 1890s, 1880s in some states, but by 1900, it's pretty well established uh, Wright was born in, in 1908. Um, and then, you know, he dies right before uh, you start to see movement on civil rights legislation uh, for the national level. Um, so, yeah, that's his. Um, he, in fact, he, he leaves America towards the end of his life, partially because his, his wife was white and he um, got face harassment because of that. Um, but also, I think, like many African Americans in the Jim Crow years, if they could, they they often found more uh, happiness and stability and peace in in Europe. Uh, it doesn't seem Wright found that though. He did find existentialism, and of course, that's going to influence his work, The Outsiders. The Outsider turns from Marxism a little bit, um, and and you know, faced declining reviews and 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 criticism of his work increasing and things like that. So I think the end of the, his life was fairly hard as far as I know. I haven't read a biography of Richard Wright. Um, I do have the chronology that every Library of America volume includes at the end about the writer. Um, born in Roxy, Mississippi, um, to an illiterate sharecropper and a school teacher. Um, all four grandparents were born into slavery. That tells us much about his, his background. Maternal grandfather uh, served in the U.S. Navy in 1865, so one of these um, uh, former slaves who served in the U.S. Army during the Civil War. 
Then he became disillusioned because of a bureaucratic error that deprived him of his pension. Um, so that's so right away, even before he's born, his family is running into these problems of racial discrimination. Um, but basically, he's born poor. His father leaves him uh, for another, or for, leaves his wife or his life, his mother. His father leaves his mother for another woman, uh, basically abandoning him. Uh, his mother has to work as a cook. He is able to get an education through the public schools that we just talked about with um, the Du Bois book on, on Reconstruction, of course, at the Howe Institute in Memphis. Um, and he ends up being raised mostly by his grandmother, um, but he gets put in a settlement house at some point, uh, an orphanage in Memphis for, for a while, um, separated from his parents. Um, what else have we got here? So was, uh, this is really interesting. I, I got to read a biography of this guy. There seems to be so much going on. Um, so he ends up living with a, a saloon keeper. His, I think his mother starts having a relationship with this guy, Silas Hoskins, who was murdered by whites who wanted his, who, you know, who wanted his prosperous liquor business. This is, I guess, right when... Um, temperance movement starts or prohibition begins. Um, anyways, a lot of drama in his, in his early life. Um, and of course, he worked many odd jobs as he was growing up, as he was learning to be a writer. During, um, he worked as a dishwasher. He worked as a clerk in the post office, which is, of course, reflected in, in this, this book. So in 1929, he's working in the central post office in Chicago. So he's also kind of experiencing the Great Migration. He's a product of the Great Migration. So he is such a great figure. I, I'm surprised I haven't read his stuff before because he seems just his biography matches so much of the highlights of, of African-American history of, of the time he's living. Um, and so because of this, I think his work, and I already can tell just by reading uh, Law Today, which I, which I read in one day. I just gobbled it down. It's so good. Um, is, I mean, it's got this bitterness, this, this nastiness to this that, uh, that I haven't like seen in some of the other black writers I've looked at in this podcast. Uh, and I think that's, um, I think it does, I, I think that makes law today like worth reading, um, is that kind of anger and bitterness. It's not a good look, uh, for the main character, you know, basically the thesis, this, this book has a really clear thesis, really clear theme, and that's that society in general, not just white society, but that's, you know, there's obviously criticism of, of, of the realities of, of America in the Jim Crow years. But everything is kind of working against black people getting ahead at all. And so he does this by looking at what day in the life of one guy, uh, Jake um, Jackson is his name. And it kind of is, it's like almost like Ulysses in this way. In fact, the modernist approach we get in Law Today makes me, th made me think of Joyce quite a lot. Um, I don't know when or if he read Joyce, but um, the way it works here, if you've ever read Ulysses, you know there's a lot of different experimental styles. And there's at least three or four clear experimental styles that Wright uses here. He's not quite as experimental as, as Joyce, and obviously he can't be if he's writing after Joyce, but 
Um, like if you remember, there's a chapter in Ulysses where each little section is a headline, and that's the that's the chapter where Leopold Bloom is at work at the newspaper, right? And each there's all these like headlines popping throughout, which kind of almost form a Greek chorus of the of the chapter. He has that here, the very similar structure, and and instead it's because this is set the day where this is set um, is the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. So all the news, well, newspapers, media, but, but the radio, I think in particular, is is telling the story of, of Lincoln and the Civil War, of course, a central event in the lives of, uh, in, in African-American history. Um, but this almost becomes like the chorus, the Greek chorus of this book, where literally you have a narrator, but the narration is not of Jake's life, but of of you know, the end of slavery and, and Lincoln's life. And so we get interspersed, you know, the voice of the, of the radio speaking about Lincoln. And I think the reality of Jake's life, which is not pretty, it's pretty horrible, is, of course, contrasted with the hope and potential and the dream of, 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 of what the end of slavery could have meant. I, I think in this way, this book really fits well with Black Reconstruction in America, you know, as, a, as, a, as much of that book is about lost potential and lost opportunities, this book here is, is at the other end of that, you know, at the depths of, of Jim Crow and the Great Depression, right? Um, and so these are contrasts. Now, of course, we got, what is it, 70 years after, after the American Civil War, um, Still in people's living memory, I suppose, of at least some, but at least a non, you know, at least a generation back in living memory. As we just saw, uh, Wright's own grandparents were all born in slavery and all freed um, during, um, presumably freed during during the Civil War. I, I don't know their all their dates, but um, his parents weren't born as slaves, as far as I know. So. It makes sense that all of his grandparents survived uh, slavery. So, anyways, that's the the Greek choir, uh, Greek chorus. I mean, um, of of the book. Um, he uses a lot of media throughout here, though. That's not the only example of that. So that's like really the modernist approach we get here. Uh, there's another section I'll talk about in the next episode, which which has a similar kind of really experimental thing. In fact, it's about like. Out of this 200-page book, it's it's like 30 pages are devoted to just uh, an experiment almost in writing, and it's it's kind of amazing. So um, the other thing that um, maybe I'll come maybe I'll have more to say. I'll, I'll come to it. Um, but oh oh, I I know how this reminded me of Ulysses is the that. It's about the day in the life of a guy, but you don't want a novel about the day in the life of a guy at work, right? Of course, here he, he has to work. Jake Jackson, for reasons that are clear, is like needs this job. Um, and so he's able to write. I mean, he's able to kind of skip past that in a really clever way. I'll get to that next time. But it seems work is not his priority in his day. In the same way Leopold Bloom's day is not, you know, he only works for like an hour and uh, Stephen Dedalus only works like teaches one class in the morning or something. So work is not the highlight, the focus of these characters. Um, it is for Jake in a way, but but you know it's it's he, Wright uses an opportunity to do some interesting things in the story later on. So um, let me jump into this. Uh, 
The book's only 200 pages long or so. The part one, it covers the first 100 pages. It's called Commonplace. Um, and it begins with the radio program discussing... Um, uh, it doesn't really discuss Lincoln. It just, well, it, it's mentioned that it's Lincoln's birthday, but it's not, it's not about Lincoln's life. I'll, I'll read it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Bassett speaking, station WGN, Tribune Square, Chicago. At the next tone note, tone beat, the time will be exactly 8 o'clock, central standing time. Ting, courteous, the never stop watch company, ladies and gentlemen. Look out of your windows. What do you see flapping so proudly and sedately at every corner and over every building entrance? Doesn't it make your heart skip a beat? A beat to see old glory floating there so beautifully in the morning? Breeze, my dear friends, our flag is flying high today in honor of one of the greatest Americans, a man who saved his country and bestowed the blessing of liberty and freedom upon millions of his fellow men. This is the birth. This is February 12th, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. At this time, Professor Weatherspoon, head of the Department of History at University of Chicago, will tell you of Lincoln's background and of his glorious career. Professor Witherspoon, umph, umph, good morning, everybody. And that's setting up uh, the date. It tells us the setting. It tells us where we are. It tells us the weather. Obviously, February in Chicago, shit weather. And we get into it. And we actually start with Jake's dream. Uh, his, you know, as you, as you know, you remember the dreams you have in that last REM cycle towards, you know, before you wake up, you're most likely to remember those dreams. You don't remember the dreams you had throughout the night, usually. His dream is of, of rising, of running upstairs. And, of course, that symbolism of uplift, uh, could be taken many different ways, personal for the race, uh, the dreams of the nation, whatever. Uh, but he's kind of dreaming of the, of, of the rocky jump, climb up the, up the steps, right? And then he wakes up, and it's immediately like just this bitterness and nastiness you feel throughout, um, not only in how he himself feels, um, obviously like probably hungover, feeling gross, but everyone feels kind of gross in the morning, right? He's got a wife, Lil, Lilith, I guess. She's referred to as Lil throughout. Um, and she's younger than him. I don't know if we get Jake's age. Um, maybe we do at some point, but we know Lil is, he got, she got married to this guy when she was 17 and she was much younger. And this is jumping ahead to plot we get in the second half of the book, but she has basically been coerced by Jake to have an abortion when she got pregnant, and this has caused her to have medical problems. So the medical problems that are talked about early in this chapter are just explained later on, and basically it's a botched abortion uh, that he had her do, and she's seeing a doctor. She has to owe, She owes him for the abortion, $500, plus he's saying she needs to have this, like, this tumor removed. She has a tumor. Now, I'm not, it's not clear whether they're being conned here because Jake's constantly being conned, um, and that's kind of the whole plot of the story is how everyone is taking advantage of him, um, black and white. Um, in fact, mostly black people, because that's his social circle and the people around him. Actually, I don't think there are any white, like, characters who are actively conning him, right? But the implication is, like, this whole structure, this whole system is propped up this the, by by American society and American capitalism, right? By this point, is a, is, is a full communist. Like, I think he's a Communist Party member. And, you know, throughout the Great Depression, that was Wright's uh, political background. But, you know, his point is, like, this society is keeping back, keeping back 
down black people, and it's a structural thing, right? It's not on its own just racial oppression, although that's, uh, you know, his criticism too. He's got a broader kind of critique here. But it's notable that everyone who's keeping a foot on his neck in a way, you know, is are, are in his kind of peer group, which tells us how people see him. People don't respect him. He's not taken seriously by people. Um, maybe his bosses, yeah, maybe his bosses at the post office are, are white, um, but almost everyone else who's taken advantage of him are, are black. And he's got only himself to blame too, right? Like Jake is, makes really bad decisions constantly, right? Whether it's the forcing the abortion on his wife or running, playing the numbers, uh, you know, beating his wife and getting called into the office because of, you know, risking his job during the Great Depression is, is dumb. Going into debt constantly, uh, letting people run over him and take advantage of him, spending beyond his means. Um, now, we get to, in the opening chapters here, we have this, like, breakfast scene where the milkman comes. And, again, that's like, makes me think of Ulysses. Like, the first chapter has a milkwoman, right, in, in the, first, the very first chapter of Ulysses. Um, but she burns an egg of his, ruining an egg. I don't know. You have to cook an egg for a long time to ruin it, I think, to make it, like, black and uneatable. But Lil does that because she's, like, worried about this medical issue she has. And Jake flips out about this. He's so angry, just full of bitterness and anger about a situation and, you know, beats her, slaps her over a variety of things he's pissed off about. But primarily, like, the, the instigator is the egg, and he can't get the egg out of his mind for, like, the rest of the book. He's Even towards the end, he's thinking about the egg as, like, a justification of his mistreatment of his wife. But meanwhile, when he goes to change, uh, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but he goes to change. He's got, like, ten pretty nice suits, right? And we imagine those suits, the way they're described, they're colorful. They seem to be nice suits, expensive. So he spends out of his means for himself. Meanwhile, like he puts on this nice suit to go. And obviously he needs one for work, but he's also just kind of showing off among his peers. And then his wife's like, I, I have no money for food today. Like we're the, the, everything's empty. The, the cupboards are empty. And he's like, well, I don't have anything. You know, I have nothing to give you. And he immediately goes and spends money running numbers and, and playing the numbers game and loses all his money. He, in fact, pays money to a, essentially a, a psychic who interprets his dreams into numbers that he's going to then play. And he's just throwing money away, you know, constantly. I mean, at, at no point is he not, like, spending beyond his means. It's like, he, what does he make for his day at work, like? I don't know, like a five bucks, four bucks. I, I don't know. We do get his salary at some point. It's two thousand uh, a year, so you can do the math. It's like five dollars a day, right? Uh, it's, I think it's twenty one hundred is his salary. It's declared at one point. He spends hundreds of dollars. Uh, he doesn't have throughout the course of this day. Um, now maybe this is an extreme example, but it's um, it seems not to be because he's already in big debt and he's. Constantly thinking, like, how can I pay? You know, he's doing the math in his head, how he can pay off $500 for the doctor's bill, how he can uh, pay off this other debts he has. He's got debts all over town. Um, and, and Lilith 
Lil can't like even get food because she can't even get credit at the stores because they run out of credit at virtually every grocery store in town. So this is all his fault. Like, and and she's just so like hard to watch and observe. She's like sad all the time. He yells at her for talking to the milkman, for talking to the neighbor. He's like, oh, you're constantly running your mouth off. Um, and she's got no life. She's got nothing to do all day except sit there and wait for him. And she's just doing what any housewife in that situation would do and talk to neighbors, talk to delivery man. And, and then when she's talking to the milkman, he, Jake, immediately assumes she's flirting with him. And he, I mean, he just paid for the, or paid, he, you know, he didn't really pay for the abortion, but it's all debt. But he's blaming her for, the abortion implying maybe he thinks that she sleeps around or doing the, the Maury bit. Like, that's not my kid. How could it be? Um, you know, blaming someone else. He's always externalizing blame. He never takes any responsibility. Um, so it's really the interplay. This whole book is the interplay of personal failings and structural uh, difficulties that he's facing. Because it's not like he there's an easy escape here. He's already in debt. But he still makes... Given the situation he's in, he makes every he makes every possible wrong choice. Um, wow, I'm really liking this, but this is really good stuff. Uh, I couldn't find anything on YouTube reviewing this book. Obviously, I found some good reads. Um, there's not a Wikipedia page for this book. Um, amazing, uh, amazing book, really. Uh, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here. Uh, a great section where he's combing his hair. He's got this like uh, nappy bangs. I, I'm, I'm not trying to envision what this is. I think it's just like um, um, he's got curly hair, <laughs> anyways. But he has to like comb it. And there's this great dis- metaphor he right uses of this like being a war, where the comb are the soldiers and they're breaking the plastic bits of the comb are breaking off because his hair is so tangled. Um, Meanwhile, I think he resents his wife having, like, the hair straightener uh, and stuff. And then he, see, he like, puts the pomade in. It's, it's a great scene uh, there. Um, there's a, another great moment. I think this is in Chapter 3 of Part 1 where he's reading the newspapers. And it's just like every headline triggers him. I don't know if you've ever seen someone like this or had this conversation where that's like they're watching the news and everything. They have a commentary on it. And it's always like the bitterest, angriest, nastiest commentary you could imagine. And that's what he does here. No matter, like, there's a, a headline. Roosevelt strikes at money changers. We'll drive them from the temple, he says. And then he goes on about, like, the Jews for, for a while. Then we get Germany demands arms equality. Vows to bolt league if denied. And then he complains about that. And he has this commentary. Um, now, this is kind of set up for later in the book, with the scene I, I'm, I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit for you, where it's 30 pages of just quick back and forth dialogue, uh, almost like collective stream of consciousness. And it's the workers at the post office doing their sorting and doing their work while talking to each other. And it is essentially a collective stream of consciousness. Um, but it's all politics, right? Politics jumping in and out. Everyone has their opinions. It's like thinking out loud, almost. Like a podcast, like a podcast now is thinking out loud. Um, but there's a, okay, back to this. There's a headline, Einstein says space bends. Um, I very much doubt Wright found actual headlines. He just, you know, from from this day, February 11th, 
1935 or whatever, but maybe he did. Um, but Einstein says space bends, and then he's like, that's crazy. It's, that's nonsense. Communist riot in the streets of New York is another headline, and he goes off about the Reds and the communists. Um, hoodlands abduct millionaire sons, and then he goes on on a rant about the rich. Um, now, again, we got this kind of modernist approach. Uh, I, I got to think he, this guy read Ulysses. I, I'm not, I'm not going to. You, you have to convince me, like, like, raise him from the dead and him say, I never read Ulysses for me to believe that at this point. He, he, I think he had to have read this. It would have been, um, when was that published in America? I think it was in the 1920s, 1926 or something maybe. All right. Um, the next section, chapter four, again, very this m using media to, to push the story along as he reads these uh, circulars that get shoved into his mailbox and sorts them between what he wants. Like he has basically the, he sorts the things he, he's interested in, the things he thinks his wife will be interested in. But there's a third category, things he thinks his wife might be interested in but will spend money on. And he kind of hides those two. Um, but he, we actually get the whole text of these circulars, and all of it is like trying to get his money. I mean, it's all about taking advantage of people and get them to spend money on bullshit. Everything here is a scam, I think. Uh, like uh, treatments for, for alcoholism. We have a um, get-rich-quick scheme. We got uh, other kinds of fake medicines. He saves one because he thinks it might avoid him having to pay doctor's bills at some point. Uh, spiritualists. Um, oh, yeah, a gambling, a gambling place that advertised pay after you win. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, then he gets one, uh, a death to lynchers thing. I think it's maybe he sees a flag or something. You know how the New York had the flags, like someone was lynched today, flags. Uh, out there. I think something similar like that in Chicago here, and he just grunts and is kind of angry about that, um, which is a really weird behavior. Anyways, it takes a, a, a full quarter of the book. It takes the first 50 pages of the book for him to get out of the door in the day. So it's a fast-paced book and um, lots of fun. Um, he thinks about going to the movie, but he realizes he can't because he has to go to work. I think He's got like four hours to himself before he has to go to work. It's like 12.30, he has to be at work uh, at, the, at the post office. So he does other things. One thing he does is he, he, he wastes his money um, on, the, on running the numbers, and he, 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 he fails. That's how he hopes to kind of solve his problems is, is invest more money in uh, a scheme. Then he goes to see Doc Higgins' tonsorial palace, which is basically a a barbershop, um, maybe it's like a quack doctor slash barbershop kind of place. And now by this point, he's already like beat his wife. So he's worried that his wife is going to call. I, I don't quite know her motive for doing this because obviously she doesn't want to be beaten anymore, but she also getting her husband fired from a job. I don't, I don't see the logic behind that, but she does at some point does fall through on her threat of calling the post office about, you know, this guy's beating me and you should fire him. And he talks to Doc about this, this barber, trying to convince him to, like, put in a good word for him with, uh, with uh, the post office. So he's got some kind of clout. But the Doc extorts 
75 or $100 out of him. Of course, money he doesn't have. And he says, I'll do it, but I got I to gotta bribe people. I have to go through some hoops, call a few numbers. So I'm going to need $100 to do it. And he agrees to do this to save his job. Then he plays bridge and uh, eventually makes his way to work with some, 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 some others, um, some other uh, African-Americans. So I'm kind of running out of time here. This is like my own schedule uh, right now. So I'm going to uh, stop for now and talk about the rest of the book in the next episode. I've already talked for about a half hour on this. Clear, clearly, I think this is a great book. You should read it, um, pick it up. I am sold on Richard Wright after just opening up the first book. Almost immediately I was. So it's a, it's a great read. Um, sorry for cutting this a little bit short, uh, but I've got some things I got to do. So I'll just pick up in the next episode and uh, talk about the rest of the book then. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time uh, when I finish my thoughts on Law Today. And every night they sang in the pale moonlight Oh, by gee, by gosh, by gum, by jaw Oh, by jingo, won't you share our love? We will build for you a hut You're gonna be our favorite nut We'll have a lot of little oh, by golly, then we'll put them in the follies.